something I came across, which is a little bit scary, but not all that surprising, is potentially, at least in Australia, uh, potentially you can get sued for defamation based on comments that are left on your Facebook page. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Digital Deep Dive. We're in week five now, still going strong. I'm, of course, your co-host, Lachlan Kirkwood, and I'm accompanied by none other than Luke Chapman. How are you doing this week, Luke? I am barely alive, but still kicking. <laughs> I like the, uh, the motivation. The, uh, the deep we'll dive goes on. <laughs> yeah. All good. Well, hopefully uh, you've been alive enough throughout the week to uh, take some notes on some industry news and trends. But as always, we kick things off with a bit of summary of what's happened throughout the week in the industry and what digital marketers should prepare for. Pretty busy week this it was, week. It was massive. Absolutely massive. I uh, We were kind of just talking before this. It probably won't be enough time for a deep dive this week, to be honest, because there was just so much happening that... Um, And they're actually really important updates that um, genuinely will impact the way that digital marketers do approach different strategies on different platforms. Um, But yeah, did you want to kick into it? Is there something? uh, Yeah, so no, we'll we'll skip the deep dive this week, but uh, I think we'll take up a full, at least a half an hour, probably more with uh, the updates from, from the week. What's new that you've seen in social this week? So probably one of the bigger ones, um, which pretty much, I guess, everyone's probably heard about by now is that um, Instagram is finally releasing a uh, ad placement in the discover feed. Um, So this was a largely untapped area for ad placements since the dawn of time for Instagram. Um, And I guess the comparable version in Facebook would be something like marketplace just in terms of um, the native kind of ad format, but essentially Brands will be soon uh, will soon be able to target ads in the Discover feed. Now, these aren't going to be placed directly in the feed from a top line view. Um, so, when you open up the Discover section, um, it gives you a catalog of columns of different content that you can engage with. So, there won't be ads um, initially in that field of view. Um, but what happens is once a user um, clicks into an actual post and start scrolling through content, that is when an ad will dynamically be placed. So it's a bit more of an immersive experience and it's a bit more um, intuitive and native almost to that format. Um, so I'll put a link in the show notes, but there was a good example that TechCrunch covered, um, just a bit of a screen recording of what they actually look like. Um, and again, these are really good for um, visually enticing content or a product itself that looks native within the Discover feed. And I think it's really going to be quite a good ad format because, I mean, in the Discover feed, people are looking to discover new content or new products. So I think it's going to be a really uh, engaging type of um, ad placement. And from what I've heard with brands uh, targeting ads in the marketplace placement, it's been quite effective. So that was probably one of the bigger things, to be honest, that I was really excited about throughout the week. And then one of the other kind of main ones that I wanted to cover this week was uh, the new LinkedIn algorithm update. Um, So recently, Peter Davies, who's head of product at uh, LinkedIn, published a post um, kind of following in almost Google's recent approach where they just openly 
given a bit of warning to digital marketers saying that there was an algorithm change. Uh, although Peter, in this case, wrote a full blog post saying um, what the new parameters of the algorithm will be um, and what kind of weights certain types of content and types um, or forms of engagement signals will have. And essentially, um, again, I'll put a link in the show notes, but essentially it kind of comes down to a few key areas of the new algorithm update. And these are areas in which um, they're nothing new, but they're kind of doubling down on these particular weights. So one of the biggest things to start off with was that they announced that the new algorithm will prioritize content from people you work with or people you have worked with. So I guess, Luke, you're probably a good example in this is that you're more likely to see content from myself, seeing as we had worked together. Um, and if you, at your current role, will be more likely to see content from the people that you are working with. Um, and based off that, it also wants to surface content from interests that you have, which again has been something that LinkedIn has historically targeted from. But now with things like LinkedIn groups, hashtags, um, and different types of content like video and images, they're able to, I guess, connect these disparate data points and create a more accurate um, or more true, I guess, vision of what your interests are. Now, it will also combine these weights with that initial weight that I mentioned about people you're connected with. So say, Luke, for instance, I follow the hashtag social media marketing and you publish a post um, and use that hashtag within that post, I'm more likely to see that post um, because you are A, a someone that I've worked with, and B, you also use that, con um, that hashtag in that content. So the weight on that will be much stronger than what I would see than someone who I just have previously worked with and didn't use the hashtag. And one of the other really interesting things that they actually talked about in this post was that they openly kind of said how many or gave comment to how many hashtags and tags you should use in a post, which is quite interesting because... Well, I'm very interested they, to know the answer to that one. <laughs> I know, right? Like it's something that everyone's kind of experimented with and found different results in terms of the engagement that certain ones drive. Um now, they mentioned on hashtags, I'll start with, um, that there should be a maximum of three per post, which like I've probably used about three to five myself in the past. Um, now, there's no current penalty for using more than three, but it just says the optimal amount is three. And also just on hashtags, a bit of a side note as well is they recommended using more niche hashtags uh, to drive more um, authentic conversations around particular topics of people's particular interests. Um, a good example of this it is makes that... Sense though, right? I don't think that's unique to this platform. It's pretty much on any social media where if you are using a hashtag that's really popular and millions of people are tweeting about it or posting about it or whatever, um, you know, unless you're a big famous person with lots of followers, you're going to disappear pretty quickly within the noise of that, you know, really busy hashtag. So I think it makes sense um, anyway to, to use a more niche kind of hashtag, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. And um, again, it kind of just shows how LinkedIn is almost following, you know, two or three years behind Facebook's algorithm. 
which, yeah, it's kind of interesting to see these new insights. Um, but a good example would just be using something like hashtag project management instead of hashtag management, um, just because someone, you know, might be more likely to follow that niche hashtag or they might have particular experience in that particular field. Um, and just kind of finally on this LinkedIn algorithm update, um, as I was going to mention, it gave reference to the amount of people that you should tag in a post to start new conversations. Um, and the maximum amount that you should aim to target, and again, no penalty given if you use more than this, is five. And whether that be in the post or the comments, they kind of just mentioned that it's more about just getting people to start driving conversations than actually just tagging people um, because comments have a much larger weight on the algorithm than people just simply viewing or liking it. So it was really good, to be honest, to kind of, see I guess under the covers as to what the new algorithm update will feature. Um, now Peter published a good summary of the blog post on his own LinkedIn account so I'd recommend checking that out um, but if you head over to the LinkedIn engineering blog there's a complete like case study breakdown as to like exactly um, what certain weights might have over different types of content I don't suppose they talked about the whole, um, you know, linking out from posts, whether you should link from the actual post or in the first comment, like a lot of people are doing to try and game the algorithm. They didn't, but they did. So in Peter's post, he mentioned that um, instead of just sharing a link, you should add your thoughts to it, which to be honest, is kind of common sense. Um, you should add more value than just simply publishing something. Um, but yeah, no, they didn't give any mention to that, which like I completely agree. Like if I publish a post, like a native post to LinkedIn, like it gets far more engagement than if I'm to add a link. The other thing that Peter mentioned was that, um, which I don't really believe to be honest, is that he said there's no difference in weights in terms of the type of content you publish, whether it be a video, an article or an image. And like you and I have talked about this in the past where, Video obviously receives much more engagement than just an image or a text post, but it was really strange that articles don't receive much engagement at all, considering that they are essentially like hosting long-form content on the platform. So you would think it would prioritize that form of content um, and show that to more users. When when articles came out, I thought, right, this is going to be the next big thing. You know, um, LinkedIn is trying to do what Medium is doing, really, uh, but on their own platform. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people jumped on it and were publishing some really great content and it was just dying in the feed. Like, um, I think you and I have experienced the same where we've published stuff before in LinkedIn articles and it just doesn't get the engagement. Yet you can publish something similar in, um, you know, just a regular post and, heaps more people are seeing it so i don't know what they've done there but it's been that way for a while now so i don't know if they've lost sight of what's happening with articles it's just not a priority at the moment yeah and look it's um it's very similar with groups as well i mean we're kind of getting off topic here but like groups like i was really disappointed with linkedin groups and i know that they'd put out some new updates at the end of last year to kind of prioritize in the feed but yeah, I'm just not kind of seeing the engagement in particular groups that you would on like a Facebook group or something like that. So yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, I guess something else I wanted to cover in the social landscape, um, particularly on algorithm updates, is YouTube is now updating the uh, UI for the way that content is displayed. So they're following 
in Facebook's footsteps in adding a layer of transparency behind organic posts or videos in this case. So recently, I don't know if you saw, but on Facebook, you can click the kebab menu and um, it'll drop down and say, why am I seeing this post? You can select that and it'll give you some indication as to the weights behind why you've seen it, whether it be it's because you engage with that particular person's content more than other people or uh, you're interested in video more than images. Um, now YouTube's following in those footsteps and below every video in the feed now, it will give a brief insight as to why you're being shown that suggested video. A good example that they shared a screenshot of was um, a user had subscribed to another creator uh, and that creator had liked that video or favorited that video. So it kind of just gives that layer of transparency and I think it's really good that they are doing that, particularly for creators now, just because creators will have a bit of an understanding as to um, if there's other particular creators out there who are almost like referring them video traffic and, you know, could they potentially collaborate with those creators then? And also on that, they're adding a um, list of category tags uh, before the up next section uh, as you watch a video. So as you watch a video on mobile or desktop, there'll be a up next section um, which tells you uh, what suggested video is going to play next. Now YouTube is inserting a kind of a tag menu in between that with particular categories or creators that you can just select on. So it'll recommend you other topics and if you happen to see a topic that you find more interesting than what the next suggested video is, you can then select that and it will take you directly there, which is quite good, I think, for things like research. Um, you know, if you're wanting to find something a bit more granular, um, it's going to offer you better insights on that. But of course, at the other side of that also comes the risk of, you know, it kind of suggesting either inappropriate as we've recently seen with YouTube videos or just videos that aren't relevant to you. Although YouTube does have, I guess, quite a bit of good experience in terms of the suggestions that it will offer users. Yeah, I've seen some uh, some interesting things come up in the, you know, autoplay or the, the up next videos. It'd be nice if they do a little bit of work to that and hopefully make it a bit better. Yeah, and no, I'm really looking forward to it. And um, <clears throat> on the video front as well, they um, also towards Twitch, not YouTube, so making a bit of a transfer over to the gaming world now. Um, Twitch released an announcement this week um, where they're essentially bringing in exclusive streams for creators. So essentially Twitch is, for those who don't know it, um, it's the game streaming platform owned by uh, Amazon now. Um, so it's quite a large competitor to YouTube, particularly YouTube gaming. Um, now Twitch has embedded uh, a great relationship with their creator community from the get-go, I guess, in terms of users can pay to subscribe to creators. They can create memberships and people can buy like creator sticker packs and things like that to support their favorite creators. Um, now what Twitch is introducing here is essentially... Um, gated content that's gated by a paywall so if you're a particular creator who has paid subscribers only those paid subscribers can view that particular stream and the interesting thing is is that um, your stream will still show up in a user's feed 
and they can see a quick preview of it in the feed but when they actually click through to that video that's when the paywall will come up and it'll encourage them to subscribe to your channel which I think is huge to be honest for creators. Um, a great example they also gave was that two top creators could collaborate together in which case you know users would want to see that premium content and it just allows them to easily set up a native kind of paywall where they can quickly can convert users on the platform directly and I guess kind of going back to what I was just talking about with YouTube like it'd be fantastic to see if YouTube could actually introduce something itself um, or even Facebook with Facebook watch like just to quickly put up a, um, a quick paywall for like exclusive content because I know a lot of creators are trying to get the most out of their audiences that they have and deliver, you know, really valuable, engaging content. So I'd love to see other platforms follow this approach, to be honest. Um, it'd be a great way to help creators monetize their their kind of passions. Yeah. Um, Fun fact for you, Twitch is not necessarily just for video games. Uh, I've got a friend who cycled around Japan and streamed it on Twitch. So that's something really? a bit different. There you go. How did he find... <laughs> off topic how did he find the engagement on it i've never used it myself to be honest um yeah i think it was more just for uh his friends and things to watch but um i don't know maybe yeah maybe i'll have to um ask him how it went and see if we can get some stats on that yeah another fun fact is so prime day is coming up for amazon i was just gonna mention prime day <laughs> <laughs> you probably read it as well but um yeah not, i've got using... emails from amazon in all of my different email accounts about it yeah so two-day event this year, and um, they're using Twitch to host a um, continual stream of just products that are on Amazon, essentially. And the channel that they're using, I think, is sold out Amazon or something like that. Like, I don't know, it's being quite authentic for kind of users. And they're also releasing, like, exclusive um like uh, in-game perks and stuff like that to Prime members. So, yeah, they're really trying to drive Twitch a lot this year to Amazon Prime, so it'd be interesting to see. On streaming video news and back to YouTube, I noticed also that if anyone's... Have you ever used Hangouts on Air, um, which is like Google? It's a Google video webcam chat kind of thing, like Zoom or Skype, but um, you could stream direct to YouTube Live. No, I hadn't. I've only used Hangout Web, not so, Yeah, so I've used that before, um, many years ago, actually. Like, it's been out for a while. Uh, but sadly, it is going away at some point this year. So anyone who's used Hangouts on Air with YouTube Live um, recently has been getting a message saying that it is going away later in 2019, whenever that means. But they're pushing people towards YouTube.com slash webcam, which is a similar product, or Google Meet, which is another product to have. But Meet has a limit of how many meeting participants you can have, whereas I don't think Hangouts on Air did have such a limit or it was a much higher limit. So it's interesting to see they haven't put a date on when it's actually going away, so maybe they'll make some changes before that happens to some of those limitations. But, yeah, if that was you using uh, that product, you might have to look for another option. Yeah, really interesting. Even Hangouts, aren't they, I guess, sunsetting that sometime this year, I'd read, just to prioritize me? Yeah, I guess they're, you know, rolling it all together. So hopefully, uh, you know, sometimes when they do that with products, uh, you end up losing some features, which, you know, they'll add in other features, but sometimes the lesser used or more complicated features go away. But hopefully they manage to keep all of that in. 
Well, I guess in other news as well, in the social landscape, um, there were a couple of updates to Twitter this week. So Twitter, uh, who had only recently not only changed the UI for the homepage uh, at the start of this year, um, and also released a private beta app called Twitter, T-W-T-R, I think. Um, They've now released another update to their UI, which I got earlier this week myself as a user. So from what I read, it's still in A-B testing. But essentially, the UI... I as well. I just say I hate it. I hate it so much. And I'm, I'm a person that forces myself to love updates because they're new and that's the way that, you know, platforms are moving towards. But from a user experience perspective, I have completely missed all of my notifications this week because they're not at the top navigation menu now. Um, I'm getting old and I don't like change. <laughs> the digital dad. So essentially for a bit of an update or a bit of context for the listeners is that Twitter, yeah, released a new UI. Um, it's broken into three columns. So on the left where there was historically the Discover feed is now your navigation feed, which used to be found at the top. So imagine a website that has the navigation feed built on the left-hand side in a horizontal format um, where there was content that was of great value to you before. Now, I as a user am really struggling because I never really used to um, engage with anything below the top couple of stories or tweets in my Discover feed. Um, And the notification sits quite at the bottom of the um, navigation on the left now so I haven't even seen that I have notifications all week um, and I've missed out on quite a few and then in the middle is the actual feed itself and then on the right hand side is now the discover feed Um, and both the right and left hand columns are static so you're essentially just scrolling through a feed in the middle of the website which yeah, not very intuitive, to be honest, from an end-user experience. It'd be interesting to see, um, you know, I mentioned that they're still A-B testing it, so it'd be interesting to see what kind of data they get back on engagement rates across it and if it is something they stick with. But, um, yeah, not very uh, impressed with the uh, update. Um, one other thing I did see from Twitter, though, which I am quite impressed with, is... Um, they released a, again, another beta version um, or a bit of a screen recording of a test where um, users on mobile will now have an option to scroll through Twitter lists as a feed. Um, do you use Twitter lists yourself, Luke? I haven't up until now because I haven't seen a huge amount of point, to be honest. Um, but I think this change will actually caused me to start making lists because uh, yeah. I think it'll be a good way to, to look through certain topics. Definitely. I um like just an example, like I use product hunt quite religiously and I tend to follow every single maker that I see post a product every single day. So I it wouldn't be a, uh, a digital deep dive without Lachlan mentioning <laughs> product hunt. I do love my product hunt. Um, and <laughs> Um, so I follow, I think it's like 2000 people now. It's ridiculous. And like, I try and follow people who look like they publish really, you know, content that's of value to me, but I tend to just, I'm a sucker for makers and I love seeing what they're building, but it would be good in my case where I could create a list of makers who are, um, building digital marketing products or web development products or, 
particular areas of interest outside of that. Um, and essentially, you can, in this list feed um, coming to mobile, you can scroll through, swipe through almost like stories and it will take you to a new list and it will filter all the content of users in that list. So to be honest, like that would filter out so much of the engaging content that I should be consuming on Twitter versus what I currently engage with. Um, and I think that they should have embedded it like a feature like that within Twitter web a long time ago because, um, yeah, like a lot of the content I see is really good on Twitter, but there's just an abundance of it now that I follow so many people as you would expect. But it's just that Twitter, unlike Facebook, you know, it's it updates in real time. Um, so whereas on Facebook, I might see posts from my top five friends. Twitter, I see an abundance of content. So sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming and I do tend to miss quite a few posts, whereas this would ensure that I engage with um, the posts that are relevant to me. So. Yeah, look, I'm really excited to see that. The thing I do like about Twitter lists um, that I've used it for before is you can actually see other people's lists that they've made. So I've I've looked at a lot of other people's, uh, you know, digital marketing or SEO lists just to find other interesting people to follow. Um, So that's one thing I have used it for before, but then I kind of just follow them in my regular feed and I don't use the lists in my own account. That makes sense, actually. That's, yeah, something to factor in, I guess. Um, and the last thing I pretty much wanted to cover this week in social news, um, and it is related to Twitter. Um, Luke, we talked about this last night actually is there's a really great example of how to drive really great engagement across Twitter from a particular user who followed, um, uh, choose your own adventure kind of workflow and works that into a, um, ongoing Twitter thread. Um, I love this so much. It's so good. Um, So essentially what this user did was um, created an initial tweet where you were put in the position of being Beyonce's assistant for a day and you had to make the right decisions to make it through the day without being fired. Now she'd put up an initial tweet saying that, all right, it's the morning. Um, What is Beyonce going to eat for breakfast? And you had to choose between one or two options you chose the wrong one um it would then lead to another twitter thread which said that you were fired and it normally have a really engaging gif um there saying you were fired um if you chose the right one you would then be sent on a workflow to another series of questions and it'd say you know congratulations you weren't fired uh here's your next series of questions and i actually saw after we talked about it luke that someone mapped it out um on a piece of paper and it was massive like there was some um workflows where essentially if you chose an incorrect answer it would still take you down a list of questions where it would regardless lead to you being fired so he was still engaging with that post and users found that they were just going back and re-engaging with the complete um thread just to see what the alternate versions were and this was completely organic and um i think it had over two hundred fifty thousand likes um just for an organic post so have you really Lachlan? I played the first few and got fired and yeah, how many clicks did it take you to get fired? <laughs> yeah, I think I got like three or four stages in and then I kinda I sent it to you and gave up. <laughs> um, but where why I was getting is that uh, Apple actually tried to copy a similar version or replicate, I should say, a similar version for 
discovering content to watch on um, Apple TV and users were actually complaining because it wasn't complex and it wasn't engaging enough. Um, so it only asked a series of very brief questions about like your current mood and stuff like that. And it wasn't much of a, a journey almost or it didn't tell much of a story. Yeah, so it was a bit of a cop out. I feel like they spent five minutes on that and were like, oh, we should jump on this hot trend that's happening right now and just got the you know assistant to do it. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's... Have you seen, um, uh, what was it, uh, Black Mirror when they came out with Bandersnatch on Netflix? Yeah, I remember you talking about you watching it. I didn't watch it, but I understand. Okay, yeah. So, it was, again, it was like the Choose Your Own Adventure. They've done other ones since then with like Bear Grylls, which was awful. Um, <laughs> but what was really cool about it was people were, it's just like the books. I don't know if you ever read the books when you were a kid. Um, I did, yeah. But, yeah, so you would always kind of, you know, you'd die and then you'd go back and choose the different one and, you know, go down another rabbit hole. But what was really cool from both the um, the Bandersnatch on, on Netflix and um, and this Twitter example, people have actually mapped out on big A3 sheets of paper, like which decisions take you where and, you know, yeah. the different branches that you go down. And it's really, really detailed. Like someone put a lot of time and effort into that. Um, whereas the, you know, some of the other ones that brands have jumped on like Apple, um, you know, it's a few clicks and then it's like, oh, you should click on this and go to our product or watch this thing. Or, you know, it's just, yeah. uh, I feel like they could have done it really well if they actually put some time and effort into it and it would have been less yeah, just jumping on the bandwagon. Definitely. Yeah. But I, um. I was just so surprised to see like someone, I didn't even think it was, yeah, it was just a regular user, like just drives so much engagement on Twitter. Like it was so impressive to see that platform just, you know. Maybe they'll get um, hired by Beyonce instead of fired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It depends how well they think they know her. <laughs> but um, yeah, look, that's pretty much everything I wanted to cover this week. Um, cool. What happened I've got in a your few things and. Yeah, there's a few things in my world, which is, you know, mostly, I don't know, search, I guess, Google stuff. But also something I came across, which is a little bit scary, but not all that surprising, is potentially, at least in Australia, uh, potentially you can get sued for defamation based on comments that are left on your Facebook page. I did see that. So there was, it was kind of a, a fairly new thing that's gone through court, or at least through the first round of, of court. I'm sure it'll get appealed, but... Yeah, there were some some media um, Facebook pages where, you know, they'd posted up a story about this guy uh, who was on TV. I won't go into the whole story. We'll, I'll link to it. But basically, you know, people were commenting on it saying not so nice things, uh, but they're actually holding the publishers liable for that, um, for this user-generated content, which is just comments on their Facebook page. And the judge said, yeah, that's that's defamation and you're liable for it, which is... I kind of, uh, I guess I can see both sides of it, um, but it is a bit scary because something like Facebook, um, you know, those comments don't go into some sort of moderation area waiting for approval. They just get published straight away. So it's not like the, um, you know, the the person running that page, the admin um, necessarily sees them, you know, straight away. Uh, and most businesses can't afford a social media team to be monitoring it 24-7. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on this, see what happens. I have a feeling it might go through another couple of rounds of, of court. 
But yeah, at, at the moment, the current ruling is that uh, yes, it can be seen as defamation. So maybe you know, depending on what you're um, what you're posting and what your kind of business is, if there's likely to be something that lands you in hot water, um, definitely something to keep an eye on. Probably more for media outlets and that kind of thing, but uh, definitely be aware of that. And I'll, I'll see if you know that goes through court another time if it gets appealed and see what happens there, but. Uh, yeah, it could be a little bit scary if you're a publisher with a Facebook page. I feel like in the States, it's complete opposite way around, whereas it would be in court for revoking someone's like right to free speech because I know that's why Facebook kind of refuses to delete so much content that should not be on its platform is because the, the risk of kind of revoking someone's right to free speech. So, yeah, it'd be really interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, the organizations I've worked for where we've had quite busy um, social accounts, we've probably erred on the side of caution. Um, They have been fairly risk averse kind of organizations anyway, I guess. So we, you know, we tended to keep a pretty close eye on it and hide anything that was um, maybe crossing the line even before we'd made a decision on it. Because you do have that option as well. Don't forget, you can hide stuff. Um, You don't have to necessarily delete it. So it's another option as well. But yeah, one to keep an eye on and certainly, um, you know, don't let the comments just go nuts. Uh, Definitely keep an eye on them. Elsewhere around the traps um, this week, um, some news that Huffington Post has been hijacking the Chrome browser back button. This is not unique to Huffington Post, but basically if you're on a, a HuffPost article, and you click the back button in Chrome, it would actually take you... So, sorry, let me backtrack a minute. If you're on... If you've come from a Google search and gone to Huffington Post, reading an article there, and then you go, okay, I'm finished with this. I want to go back. And you click the back button to go back to Google. It doesn't take you to Google. They've hijacked it so that it just takes you back to the Huffington Post homepage. Um, Now, it's not unique to that website. There's plenty of others, including some big sites that are actually doing it. And it's caused a bit of an argument in the the SEO scene, at least in in the Twitter sphere, because some people are like, oh, it breaks Google's terms of service. Other people saying, well, it's not anything to do with Google. It's happening on the actual site. Um, And it's just poor, you know, it's it's bad user experience uh, anyway, but it's not necessarily Google has a say over um so I, i'm not going to pick a side i'll sit on the fence on that one but um just don't do it it's a terrible idea <laughs> <laughs> regardless whether you whether it's against google's terms or not um it's just really poor user, user experience i think it also brought up there's an uh, experiment that dan petrovich from dijon seo did uh, a little while ago a year or two ago which i'll link to as well it's quite interesting um but he discovered this a while back and did it so that he could spy on competitors' websites. Um, I'll link to the full case study because it's quite interesting, but basically he set up a a JavaScript thing so if they came to his site from Google and then hit the back button, he'd actually show them his own version of like a spoofed Google results page with links to all the competitors, which were actually just pages on his site that looked like competitors' pages, and he could then... You know, so the user kind of thought they were going back to Google and clicking on another site and looking at that site, but it was all on his, not necessarily the same domain, but all sites that he owned um, and then could track, you know, heat maps and scroll tracking and all that kind of stuff. It's 
pretty cool little case study. He just did it as an experiment. Dan um, loves playing around with all these kind of things and experimenting and seeing what he can get away with, um, usually for a very short time, but it's definitely worth a read. So I'll link to that one as well. So yeah, just don't do that. But it's also, it's 2019. Why are you able to hijack the back button in a browser? Yeah, it makes no sense. I don't know. I'm sure they'll fix that or, or change it in some update soon, maybe. Maybe not. Um, getting back to talking about uh, people leaving negative comments on social media, that's a really poor segue, but <laughs> I'm basically going to lead into um, negative reviews. Uh, and there's a company, an Australian company that started up called Removify, and they basically, for a price, will erase negative reviews about your business. So they charge anywhere from, uh, what was it? I think 500 to $1,500 if they're successful. So it's like a only pay if they get them removed kind of thing. But, you know, a lot of businesses are basically held hostage over negative reviews. And sometimes it's not their fault. Sometimes it's like... I've heard of cases where uh, in the US especially, people will go and go to a restaurant, order food, and then the bill comes and they say, uh, we want it for free or we want it for you know some ridiculously discounted price. Otherwise, we're going to leave a one-star really bad Yelp review, um, which is like, I mean, that's illegal, surely, but what are you going to do about it? <laughs> you know, those kind of review sites, um, not just for restaurants, but for all kinds of businesses, Google reviews, you know, they, they come up as soon as someone's searching for a business. If you're looking for a, I don't know, a local service um, person and there's one with five-star reviews and there's one with a couple of one-star reviews, uh, you're probably not even going to look at them, right? So it can be quite damaging to small businesses because a lot of them don't have a lot of reviews. So just like a single negative review can really pull the ranking uh, or pull the you know the average down. Um, so these guys, and it, the other thing with, um, with reviews or bad reviews is it can be really, really hard to remove them. Um, your best chance is... There's probably a whole episode in, um, you know, managing online reputation, but your best chance is probably to, you know, enter a discourse with that person. And if they were a genuine um, customer, obviously you want to try and fix that scenario and, and do the right thing by them and encourage them to update the review once you've sold it for them. But there are people out there who are just nasty people. There's also people who have nothing to do with your business. And they're like, I've seen some where, you know, this customer's left a bad review on, uh, it was a vet that I was doing some work for a while ago. Um, and a customer left a review with one star and their story was about a dog with a situation that had never happened at this vet. The customer's name was not a client of the vet. The dog's name was not you know, one that had been brought into that vet. Right. Um, and they're like, uh, are you sure you've got the right business here? Because like, you know, oh. um, and they couldn't get them to remove it. So like oh, wow. in that case, we ended up just getting it really just encouraging genuine customers who had had a good experience to go and leave reviews because um, they weren't really encouraging that or asking people to do that. And so just by flooding it with positive reviews, the, the negative one kind of disappeared into the ether a bit and, and didn't matter so much. But you know, all that stuff takes time and effort. Um, so it's interesting that someone's made a business model out of this where it's like a no win, no pay um, kind of thing to remove negative reviews. So I'll, I'll leave a link to that as well. But yeah, that's uh, a new business called Removify. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, in Google Ads news this week, there are some new updates that they've talked about on the Google blog. Um, so they're really focusing on, well, the timing's interesting because they're really trying to compete with Amazon Prime Day, 
and saying, oh, hey, you know, it's not all about Prime Day or Black Friday or anything like that. People are looking for deals year round. Um, so they're rolling out some new features to Google Ads. Some of them are really focusing on local campaigns. So you can dedicate your entire campaign to offline sales and really linking in with channels like TV and print um, to bring people in store. So, you know, not something that you always think of when you're thinking online ads or Google ads. Um, so you can now put in-store promotions uh, and local, <coughs> pardon me, local inventory ads on there as well. Another thing is they've rolled out around about 30 new in-market audiences um, across categories like beauty, sports, education, and real estate. Um, so have a look if you if you use in-market audiences, go and have a look because there'll be some new ones um, popping up there. Hopefully, it's not just US-centric, um, which is often the case in these kind of situations, um, but definitely play around with that because you'll probably see some new ones coming through in, in the near future. Also in Google News, they are deprecating the social knowledge panel markup support. What is that, you ask? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> tell me more. Um, tell me more. So do you know what the knowledge panel is? Of course. What, what's a knowledge panel for, for players at home? Where's Tachi already talking about SEO stuff? Um, it's the marked up content <laughs> for the featured search that you are searching for. So pretty much just a summary of the... Um, all the relevant information you need on a particular query or for a particular entity, most likely. Yeah, so there's knowledge panels. If you're searching for, I don't know, Bob Smith, and he's a famous person that does something or other, I don't know, he might have a knowledge panel. So you're searching Bob Smith, and then um, over on the right-hand side, it might have his photo and a bit of information about him um, and links to his social accounts. So before um, or up until now, there's been um, some markup that you could put on your page to link to um, your social accounts and things like that. Basically, now Google's saying, eh, we don't need that. We're smart enough to know automatically that kind of stuff. Um, but also you can, or you've always been able to, but you can claim your knowledge panel. So if you're searching for like a business or a, a person or, or whatever, anything where a knowledge panel comes up on the right, um, you can actually claim that panel and prove that you're that person or that you're uh, an authorized representative of um, you know that entity. And so you can claim that. I can link to the article um, in our show notes. But basically, yeah, you don't need the markup on your page anymore. So if you have been using that markup, just check uh, to make sure that what you're thinking should appear in your knowledge panel is actually showing up and make sure that you've claimed it as well because you can then update that knowledge panel once you've claimed it. Um, so you can make sure that the right stuff is, is showing up there. The last thing I've got in terms of news is about voice search and a survey that was done um, quite recently by Path Interactive. So they surveyed 620 people um, aged 13 to 85 from a number of countries. Majority were in the US, but they also did um, India, Canada, Europe. And they were asking people about voice search and how they're using it. So it's a range of people, different ages, different levels of tech savviness. And I'll link to this because it's really quite detailed and you can break down the data in all kinds of different ways. But what I found interesting is the very oldest group, that is 65 and older, were actually um, one of the biggest users of voice search. And I guess it makes sense when you dig further down into the data and see the devices they're using, a lot of them using things like um, Amazon Echo in mm. their home to search for things. And it's a generation that's probably, you know, they haven't grown up with computers. They might not have even used them much in their workplace or anything like that. So they're probably not all that comfortable 
or used to going online and searching for things on a mobile phone or on a computer. But, you know, some some way or another, they've got these Amazon Echo devices in their home. And so it's really easy for them just to ask, um, you know, voice-based questions. Um, so that's really interesting. And then on the complete opposite end, so the 13 to 18-year-old range, they're also using voice search quite a lot, which is probably not really surprising. You know, the the younger generation coming up with um, access and, and knowledge of all kinds of technology. So they're, they're pretty uh, quick to jump on any new tech. But what I did find interesting is the age ranges in the middle. So like your 22 to 34, 35 to 44, and 45 to 54, actually the lower users of voice search. Yeah, wow. Um, so, and, and some of the, you know, again, I'll link to the article. It's really quite a long one. There's lots of data and lots of insights in it, which is really interesting. Um, but one of the concerns there is obviously around privacy. So, you know, the younger, like the teenagers are using it a lot, but maybe not too concerned about privacy. Whereas the, um, I don't know, people your age and people my age, Lachlan, probably, um, you know, we're used to using a smartphone for searching for things. So we probably do type a lot in, um, but maybe not all that comfortable using voice, wondering where that data goes. One of the interesting things they also break down is how often people have to search to get the right answer. So, you know, that's something where there's a lot of room for improvement. I think some people are saying they have to search three times before they actually get the correct answer or they have to search and then they'll refine their search on an actual physical device um, rather than voice. So yeah, there's all kinds of really interesting information. I'd urge you to go and check it out. But I think regardless, if you're marketing to an audience that is over 65 or in the older generation, you definitely need to be looking at um, voice right now. And the same at the other end in the sort of teenage years, then yeah, voice is, is a go. Um, and of course, with that younger generation coming through, it's only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger as, um, as time goes on. Yeah, wow. There you go. So that's kind of all I had in terms of news this week. And I know we've taken up a lot of time already, but I believe that you had a cool new tool that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, look, honestly, I'll be really quick with this um, just because we have talked so much about industry news. Um, <clears throat> so, of course, I use Product Hunt. I love it, live it. Um, this week, the founders and um, the team behind Universe, which is a uh, no-coding development environment specifically built for mobile experiences. So you can actually build a website on mobile and it's optimized for mobile only um, just because, you know, with the ubiquity of mobile experiences these days, um, they're essentially seeing beyond a world where people use a desktop uh, to actually um, engage with websites. Um, so they just released version 3.0 of the application itself. And one of the key features that I found the most um, engaging or the most interesting almost is um that instead of using a navigation on uh, a mobile web page, which can often be quite small to engage with in comparison to desktop, so it might not be as intuitive on mobile, um, they've created a user experience that reflects almost like an Instagram story where um, in, to go to a next page, you actually swipe across to um, go to a page and at the top in the menu, it'll show you, you know, what number of, how many navigation menu pages you're on. Um, and if you post a new blog post, um, users can swipe across to read that. And um, I'd really recommend actually like looking at it. I'll put a link in the show notes, of course. But um, 
I honestly think that that will be the next version or the next iteration of how websites will be built um, just because stories are just so such a large form of content that people are consuming and people are just finding it very intuitive to engage with those forms of content. So yeah, take a look at it. And I was just going to kind of touch point and say that perhaps, you know, if you are a web developer, that could be an experience that you might want to create within your own website. I'm not too sure if they'll have an SDK for it yet, but of course you can actually just use the medium platform itself to start building web experiences mobile. That's pretty much. It sounds very cool. Yeah. Look, I will pretty much leave it at there because we've taken up a significant proportion of time with so many updates this week. We sure have. It's mostly been news. Uh, we haven't taken too much of a deep dive, but we will certainly be doing that next week. Before we go, um, I wanted to give a shout out to our friends at a new podcast called A Table at the Back. Um, so Branka and Laura, they're both ladies in business. They're both mums uh, and they are sharing a casual conversation with you on their new podcast uh, where they talk all things uh, UX writing, CX. Um, they're both you know, comms professionals used to work together at a company on the Gold Coast and, and now are living in different parts of the country. But they've got a very cool new podcast, The Table at the Back. Uh, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Definitely worth a listen. I really like the style of it. It's really cool. Very casual and you kind of feel like you literally are at a table, you know, at the back of the cafe with them and, and they kind of welcome you in as a friend. Um, so it's like a casual conversation about getting started in comms and their journey as as mums and business owners and that kind of stuff. So definitely worth a listen to that one. And if you happen to be in Brisbane or Melbourne, um, this month is an event called the Interactive Minds Digital Summit. Uh, Lachlan, I know you've been to these before and I've been as well to a few of them. Cool events. So if you're in um, Brisbane or Melbourne, the Brisbane one is 17th of July, the Melbourne event is 19th of July. Uh, we can put a link in the show notes to those as well. But there's all kinds of great speakers that are going to be there from some international uh, keynote speakers and speakers from all around the country uh, talking about all things digital marketing at the Digital Summit. Yours truly will be there at the very end of the day. I'm lucky enough to be invited to be part of a fun little um, debate at the end of the day talking about marketing automation. Uh, so that should be a lot of fun as well and a good way to wrap up the day. Um, so if you are there, come and see us. Uh, Lachlan, I'm sure you'll probably be around as well. Yeah, definitely. Planning on heading along for sure. So we can all catch up. Yeah, definitely come and say hi and, and grab either one of us. Uh, we'd love to chat to you. Until next week, I guess that's it um, for another week from us at the Digital Deep Dive Podcast. Yeah. And sorry, it's been a long one. <laughs> if you want to chat to us in the meantime, I am at Lachlan Kirkwood on Twitter and just uh, Lachlan Kirkwood on LinkedIn. And where are you at, Luke? Uh, LukeChapman.com.au or uh, on Twitter at Digital Peddler. We'll see you next week.